Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his feet. puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus let's sing together of our wonderful Savior
we thank you so much that each of us here have a story. And it might be different, but the one thing we have in common is that it's all about you and it's all because of you and what you did for us on the cross. Thank you so much for our church and for the ones that are here this morning. We just are here to worship and to learn more about you, God. And I pray that you will just guide us and lead us through this morning. Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning, Anthem. This morning we have a fun opportunity to do a uh, parent-child commissioning and dedication. Uh, when you have a next generation church, you have uh, lots of weddings and lots of babies. Lots of new life, and we have lots of new life. We have people coming to faith. So we have all kinds of new life and things happening. And so it's fun um, on opportunities like this to be able to do that. Before I invite the uh, couples up who are doing that, I just wanna run through why we do something like this. Jesus was once asked, what the greatest commandment was. Of all the 613 commandments, which one is the greatest? And he replied, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So of all the 613 commandments, the greatest one, the greatest thing is to love God with all your heart, all your affections, all your thoughts, everything you do, all your might, all your energy should be spent on making much of God. And the way that that manifests itself is by loving your neighbor. They're connected. You love God and then that has to go somewhere. It fills you up and then it has to, it seeks ways to get out. And the first place it goes to is your neighbor. Now when Jesus said that, he didn't just pull that out of thin air. He actually picked one of the 613 commandments. And I wanna show you that on the screen where he picked that out of. It's in Deuteronomy 6, verses four through nine. is what Moses tells the Israelites. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. And you shall love him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the first thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then when, when he thinks of his neighbor, who does he think of? Who is your neighbor? The one who's right in front of you. You don't need to ask who your neighbor is. Just look next to you. That's who your neighbor is. And for most people, that will be people who share their last name. People who live across the hall, not across the street, but across the hall. So look what he says. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's the first neighbor that Moses thinks of, is your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor. And the, the first neighbor you should consider are those who share your last name. The one who sleeps in the same bed with you, who you call spouse. The one who sleeps across the hall that you call son or daughter. And so I want to invite the couples up this morning who are, we are commissioning as parents to uh, love the Lord their God and to raise their children. So if that's you, you want to come up on stage here. All right. I kind of, I wanted to invite you up later so you didn't have to like stand the whole time. <laughs> Sometimes they get squirrely. Uh, so the, the, the couples that we are commissioning and stuff here today are, we have Keaton and Sierra Leisinger and their beautiful little daughter, Evelie Wren. And then we have Nathan and Anna Depenning 
and their brave little guy, Hezekiah Blake. Yeah, he came ready. <laughs> yeah, that's you. <laughs> and then we have uh, Jonah and Grayson uh, Brown and their brave little boy, Beck Avery. And so these are the couples this morning that we are commissioning as parents. And so Matthew speaks of the greatest uh, commandment that he records, but he also ends with the great commission. So we have the great commandment, or the great commandment was to love Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he ends his book with the great commission. So he commissions his church to do a work. And that is, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that is the commission that you as parents are receiving today. All authority is Jesus's. He, there's one God. Hear, O Israel, there's one God. Love him with everything you have. That is the best gift you can give to your children, is to love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do that in front of them. Do that in ways, like he says in Deuteronomy, when you're on the way, when you're on the way to the grocery store, when you're at home, when you're making dinner, when you trip and stub your toe, show them that God is God. And show them that, give them that gift and example. And make disciples, not just of your neighbors across the street, but the neighbors who live in your house. The ones who will grow up and call you dad and mom. These little children, whenever they hear the word dad, they will think of you, Jonah. They will think of you, Nathan. They'll think of you, Pete. And that's when they hear the word dad, it's you. You come to mind. When they hear mom, it's you, Anna. It's you, Grayson. It's you, Sierra. That's, that's when they hear the word mom, it's you. That's who God has given them as their parents. And God has given you these gifts to disciple. These are your disciples. And so you should baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Immerse them in everything. Immerse their lives in godliness. They should just see God everywhere because that's what you're doing. You see God everywhere because he is everywhere. So act like it and teach them that. Show them when you see flowers. Be like, hey, you see how God clothes these flowers? They're beautiful and they're just flowers. Think how much he loves us. Aren't we better than flowers? Doesn't he love us more than flowers? Jesus didn't become a flower and die as a flower. He became a person and died as a person. He loves people. He sent his son to die for people. And then teach them to observe all that he has commanded. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know what Jesus has said. Teach them, and teach them not just what he said, but teach them how to observe it. Show them how to obey it. Live it out. Don't just tell them what he said, but do what he said. Give them that gift, and they can see the rule, then they can see how they actually apply it to real life. And then know that when you do that, God is with you always. When you devote your life to making disciples, you can know for a fact that God is with you. And so we want to commission you guys to raise these children. We want to promise as a congregation to be there with you to help you. We're here for you, and we want to help you. And so this morning... I have a statement I'm going to read when we're done. Just respond to saying we do if this is your promise this morning. So I will just read. You listen. <laughs> so today, in the presence of God and the local gathering of believers at Anthem Church, do you commit to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to build your homes on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, to fulfill your biblically established roles and responsibilities as parents, and to receive equipping, assistance, and accountability from the local church if you promise to do so? Please respond by saying, we do. Now, this is something that they don't do on their own. Don't, not only do they have God with them as they do this, but they have us. They've been given the gift of a local church. They, we are here to help them and to hold them accountable. So if you are a member of Anthem Church or friends or family of these people are watching online, this is for you. We have a part to play in this as well. So today, in the presence of God and the local gathering of believers at Anthem Church, do you, Anthem, commit to encourage these families in establishing households built on the word of God? in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pray for them, equip them, and encourage them, to hold them accountable to their biblically established roles and responsibilities as parents, to give of your time, 
your talents, your energy, and your resources in order to support them as they raise their children in a way that honors God. If you promise to do so, please respond by saying, we do. Praise God. Let me pray for them and then pray out for Sam. If you are watching online, there will be a momentary blip as they stop here and then reset for the sermon. So if you're watching online and it stops, just refresh and you should see it there. But let's pray for them as we commission them and then Sam will come up and we'll hear from the word of God. Heavenly Father, you are our Father and there is only one of you. And we worship you with everything we have. We pour everything, our heart, soul, mind, strength. And we commit it all to you. We commit that this morning to you. Forgive us for divided attentions. Help us to set them aside for a moment to focus just on you and what is true. Enter our minds, Holy Spirit, and push out everything that crowds in and rivals affection and attention for you. I pray this morning that you would be with these parents, that you would be with them first and foremost in their marriages, that you'd help them to love and honor each other as husband and wife, that they would fulfill those vows to each other as the primary foundation of their households, that the house is built on the marriages that are represented up here, and that you would help them be faithful to that. And that would be a gift to their children. They would grow up knowing mom and dad are good. Mom and dad love Jesus. They love each other. That's safe. I am safe. I live in a world where there's a God who reigns and he rules in my household, and I see that every day in the way my mom loves and honors my dad and the way my dad loves and serves my mom. Pray that they would commit themselves to personally loving you with all their with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would repent of sin and believe your word and believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive us for our failures and to live in light of that and that that would lead them to lead their children well, that they would always have you on their mind so that it wouldn't be hard to bring you up at a stoplight or when they stub their toe. And uh, pray that you would help them um, now to go out and to fulfill that commission and that we would fulfill our role in helping them. Pray with Stan as he comes up to preach the word of God. He would give us ears to hear, not just to hear what you say, but then to be, uh, to have hearts that seek to apply it, to actually do what we hear, that we believe it and demonstrate that by putting it into practice. We pray to you, God, and ask for your blessing on these households and on this church. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Uh, before we get started in Acts this morning, um, just want to acknowledge some of the obvious. I mean, uh, just with the virus, the novel coronavirus that's going around, um, man, our our city, our, our country, the world is really being rocked by this and just want to acknowledge that. And, and just progression. I will remember where I was at when I heard uh, the president come on after 9-11 in that address. And Wednesday, I think, will stick with me for a while. Just the progression of that morning, we were in a leaders meeting, just kind of talking about it with some guys and just the theory of what, you know, could happen. And then by that afternoon, you see, like, the NBA is canceled, the NCAA, and you're like, okay. And then just the students, uh, now Mizzou, saying, hey, everybody work remote for the rest of the semester. And so it's just been a progression. And so we are here gathered this morning I felt the freedom from the, the CDC, the, the doctors we talked to, as well as the governmental officials to just continue to gather. And I'm not here to, to start off giving you medical advice. I mean, you have 
all of that and then some, uh, some better than others when you, when you get on social media. So I'm not here to speak to like the medical side of things, but I am here to pastor you, amen? Like that's why you're here, right? You want a pastor? And so I would just say, if you're one of those that's watching online, just know from, from me to those that are watching online, and if you have friends watching online, there's no judgment, right? There, there's no looking down on someone who is exercising the freedom they have to, to stay at home nor would I want that to go vice versa and for, for judgment to be placed on those that gather. I think scripture gives room for both to exercise faith in love. And so neither decision is void of prayer and consideration, but we are thankful to be gathered and to be opening God's word. And, but here's the thing. This isn't a time for division. It really is a time to be unified and to move forward together and I think God is giving us an opportunity uh, with this. And so what that looks like to move forward in unity, we'll have to consider that week to week, day to day, when it comes to, to really how we gather and what that looks like. But know that we can move forward with prayer and with fasting. And that is what, as a pastor, I would call us to as a church this week. That this would be, we've already been doing that in this Lenten season, preparing our hearts for Easter, but that we would this week, especially be in prayer and be fasting over the, the situation. So I just want to start our service with prayer together in a display of unity, and then we'll dive in. And so, Heavenly Father, we do, we pray, God, that you would use this sickness, this, this epidemic that is, that is taking over the world, God, that you would use it and that the gospel would spread faster than a disease that you would work in the hearts of, of our neighbors and our friends and family, and that we would be able to show them how our security, our comfort ultimately comes from you. And so, God, we pray that the gospel would go forth. We certainly pray that you would protect those from this sickness, and God, that you would bring about healing. And so we do just pray, knowing that you can speak that into existence. And God, we pray that your will would be done, but Lord, would you please have mercy, and would you please remove this, the, the coronavirus and, and just go before us in that way. And so, Lord, we do uh, look forward to how you're going to expand the kingdom, and we just prayerfully want to be a part of that. And it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're in Acts, Acts chapter 6. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to do two chapters today. All right, Acts 6 and 7. And so we're going to see really a biblical case for multiplication beats addition. And so multiplication beats addition, that is to say that, that when ordinary people have the extraordinary God working in them and through them, that is more productive than, than winsome sermons. And so that's what we're going to see. And so starting in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, I'm going to read the first verse for us. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, time out. Let's stop there. One thing, when we're studying Acts, you have to remember that this is written over about a period of like 30 years of church history. And so it really hits some highlightable stories and, and the narrative follows those things. But if you forget the time span, like that this is over 30 years, 
you could perhaps easily read Acts and start condemning every church for not having quite as many miracles or not having quite as much fellowship as we see in the book of Acts. And it'd be like somebody who's like, I've been coming to Anthem for two, three weeks now, and I haven't seen, you know, anybody, like, healed. Uh, and so it's like, no, those things have happened, in fact, in the life of the church, and we have seen God do some awesome things. But let's not forget the timeline here. And so up to this point in the book of Acts, we've seen a lot of miracles, a lot of sharing. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, we got to see some sharing to the fact where this guy named Joseph, they nicknamed him Barnabas, because in Acts chapter 4, he takes his field, sells it, and being a farmer, I don't know what farmland was worth back then, but this is a big gesture. Sells the entire field and gives the entire profit to the church to be using those proceeds. Here we are, two chapters later, and we see that, that those proceeds aren't being used properly, okay? Food was not being distributed, and there's this tension that exists in the church, and these Hellenists are complaining because their widows are being overlooked. They're not being given this daily distribution. Now, it might be worth noting, the Hellenists, they are Jewish people. Like, they are, are, are Jewish people who... They're a little bit different in the sense that when Alexander the Great came through, they kind of got caught up and mixed up with the Greeks. And so they're still Jewish people, but they picked up the Greek language and some of the, the Greek customs. But they're a minority, maybe 20, 10, 20%. But they spoke Greek instead of the native Hebrew. And, and so one of the questions in the commentaries is like, is that why they're being overlooked? Just because they speak a little bit different language? Perhaps, or is it because they lost some of the traditional Jewish love for like the temple ground, maybe? Or another possible thing that could be happening here is people saw an opportunity to create division, and so those outside the church come in and start stoking division and say, man, maybe they're lesser and maybe we should treat them like this. And perhaps it's just one or a combination of all three of those things but we don't know the exact motivation, but we do see the outcome here in 6.1. These Hellenist widows were consciously and actively being neglected in daily distributions. This is ongoing. This is church-wide. And the neglected group is coming and saying, hey, I don't know if this is what Barnabas intended when he sold his field, but this seems wrong. That's the group that's coming forward at this point. They're saying, this seems like... That's a problem. And here, I would want you to know, Anthem, right out the gates. Injustice is not a new thing, right? Discrimination is not a new thing. Here we have it in the early church, and here's the point. More people, more problems. Like, if you get more people together, you're going to have more problems. Todd, in our teacher's meeting, he said it like this. It's not surprising as the number of saved sinners increases, that the trouble increases as well. Everyone is a sinner. Christians are just saved sinners, but they're all sinners. So it's not surprising, even a community like this, where they're all loving each other, sharing bread and homes, money, etc., that they still are going to have problems. And if they couldn't pull off the ch perfect church back then, we shouldn't expect to now. And so if you've been coming to Anthem, you're like, man, Anthem's great. You just don't know us yet. Like, that's the reality. Like, it's funny, but it's, but it's true. Like, the reality is that, that we are not perfect people. And so if you're like, I just don't feel 
worthy, like I'm not that great, I'm a sinner. It's like, great, join the rest of us. You're not going to mess anything up, okay? The church back then and now still has people, broken people, doing broken things, such as, <laughs> to my knowledge, there's no neglecting of a whole class of widows taking place yet in Anthem. In some regards, I'm comforted. I'm like, okay, I'll take our dysfunction versus this dysfunction. But here's the reality. There's more people. There's more problems. And so here's what happens in verse 2, the narrative. In the 12, summon the full number of disciples and said, uh, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. Okay, time out. When you initially read that, I don't know how you read that, but for me, initially, I read that, and I'm like, oh, disciples, man, they're pretty big time. Just that language, I don't know what tone, but it's like, hey, we're not going to give up preaching to go serve tables. And that's how I read it. Notice, though, that in the narrative, no one reacts to them in that way. No one thinks ill of them. In fact, we see in their town, here's how they respond to this thing that we just read, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. <laughs> and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and others. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed, laid hands on them, and that's what happened. Here's the thing. The disciples delegating was them caring. And, and some of you are like, yeah, that's just great leadership. That's Matt in our teacher's meeting. He's like, that's just great leadership. But perhaps you're like me and you assume that good leadership, if you really care, that must mean you need to roll up your sleeves and do the work. And I don't know that if, how that was ingrained in me, but it's like, if you really care about something, you ought to be there and you ought to be the one doing it. Now, tax season, I care about my taxes being done correctly. So how should that wisdom be applied? Now, let me give you a thing, because if I really care, right, I should probably be the one to do my taxes. Here's a little history about me. I ain't so good at doing taxes. <laughs> at one point, at one point, somebody told me that if you receive cash, you do not have to report that in taxes. And I believed them. Uh, that's... For you young people, that's not true, okay? It's still income. You must report that. And thank the Lord that, that I married well and she helped me understand that. But, but me caring about my taxes because I care, I delegate. That is the best way I can show that I care and respect the government is to delegate and pay somebody else to do my taxes, okay? We can't, I can't accuse the disciples of not caring when in fact this is the height of their concern. It just wasn't their role. They took responsibility. Amen? They took responsibility. They just had it appointed to others. Others who appear to be more gifted and more qualified to address the need. And as men who walk with Jesus, they were eminently more qualified to preach and prayer. And I'm thankful, and we are all thankful, that they did just that. Had they not, we'd be missing a large chunk of the New Testament. Because they would have been too busy waiting tables to pen that down. And so everyone in their context, everyone was pleased that they expressed their care by delegation. And I'm 
hitting on this point, and I was studying this, and I couldn't figure out why this is bothering me. But I want to belabor the point because it's biblical. But two, I just want to acknowledge, I think at Anthem Church, we're going to feel a growing tension as our church continues to increase that the need for, for pastoral staff to specialize and dedicate ourselves, like the, the disciples here, to preaching, to prayer. And here's the thing, is I want to belabor this point because I know that there's someone in here who is so stubborn, who really needs to hear this but is just bullheaded, is just not okay with that. And I know that because that person's me, actually. Like, genuinely, church, I need you to hear this. That I read this, and I'm like, that, good job, guys. That's the right thing to do. But when it comes to, to me, my personal ministry, and this, honestly, this is why I love church planning. Because initially, I get to be the truck driver, the sound setup guy. I mean, kids ministry. Like, you just get to do it all. And now that things are growing, it's like, well, somebody ought to spend some time on their sermon. It's like, oh, man, really? There's a desire in me, and, and maybe some of it is I'm just trying to assess my heart this week. Rarely do I get a whole lot of encouragement for my personal prayer time. Rarely is there like that. Those things go unnoticed, right? But it's the, the serving things that, that bring about like some level of recognition. I don't know if that's at the core of why I gravitate towards those things or what, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and we have to study this out because I believe that, that here in Scripture we see the right thing for these biblical leaders to do is to dedicate themselves, as they said, to the preaching of God's word, to prayer. And I know that you guys would want to graciously allow me as a pastor to do just that. And I'm trying to find the freedom myself to do what I see here. Because there's this tension, right? There's this tension because also Jesus said in Mark 9.35, hey, if you want to be first, you got to be last, a servant of all. The way up is, is down. It's being a servant. And we see this servant leadership. But also true in Scripture is this recognition that, that we aren't Jesus. I don't know if that's news to you guys, but, but we aren't Jesus. We can't do it all. We're going to have limitations, not being God, right? And so one of those limitations is, is I can't be the Savior of Anthem Church or the Savior of Columbia. There's one Savior, Jesus Christ, not Stan Hyatt. There's one head of the church. Again, it's the Lord Jesus. And when we fail to acknowledge that, when we fail to place the right priority on God's word and through prayer, we start to make man the center of things moving forward and we would wrongly start to credit the church and its growth and things happening to an individual rather than to God and the only way that this is going to move forward that we're going to continue to see this city reached is if God goes before us and softens hearts and I want to be in prayer begging God to do just that I want to be unpacking God's word and being able to preach it. And it's going to take time. And it's going to take time away from those things that honestly I genuinely have loved. But I think it also creates an opportunity that it begins to share the work. And I'm saying if you're bullheaded like me and you want to just keep doing it all, keep doing it all, what we're also simultaneously doing in that moment 
is eliminating opportunities for other people to step up and use their gifts. If these guys keep waiting tables, one, New Testament doesn't get written, written a lot of it, but also, two, it keeps faithful men like Stephen from having an opportunity and an outlet to use how God's wired them. And if you're a busy body that insists on doing it all so it can be done rightly, man, if I have that mentality with my kids, they'll never learn how to do anything. I got to be okay with them messing some things up, or it's a part of the learning process. And so, us stepping aside inhibits people to be raised up. And honestly, it's not the kids' analogy falls short because honestly, sometimes when we step aside, others get raised up who are better suited and better equipped to do the job that we were doing. And that too is humbling. <laughs> when you give something up and they do it, you're like, yeah, that was better. What does that say about me? Okay, but, but here's the thing. That ought to be our posture, is we want to see people raised up if we want to see the gospel continue to go forth. And I want it to be noted here, the disciples, they didn't empower these guys. The Holy Spirit empowers. They mobilize them, but they didn't empower them. God empowers them. And the disciples, they devote themselves, in verse 4, to prayer and ministry of the word. And so what happens when each role is really doing their part and working together, verse 7, don't miss this, in verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the, numbers, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I said earlier that multiplication beats addition. When we read previous stories of the disciples preaching in Pentecost, I think it's worth noting, I don't want to overemphasize this, but in those contexts, remember it said, the Lord added to their number. Added to their number. What does it say here? God multiplied greatly their number when other parts of the body got involved. Multiplied greatly. And, and we see that it, it's not just the church actually grows wider and deeper when pastors get others involved. Ephesians 4, when saints are equipped and use their gifts. And I say wider in the multiply greatly, that seems more than added to, but also the depth of ministry that's taking place here. What, why do I say depth? Look, he says the, the, the disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, that's a tough crowd. Can you guys work with me here a little bit? The priests, these were the people that crucified Jesus in this town just weeks or months before. And it says that they are coming to the faith for what they are seeing here. And earlier, just a few chapters before, we saw that one of those guys said, hey, let's just see what happens. Gamil was just like, let's just see what happens because this, if this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop it. And what they are witnessing is a more full expression of Jesus Christ. Because it's not just powerful teaching. It's not just miracles. But now they're seeing the body serve together. They're seeing this care. They're seeing this neighborly love take place. And these priests who crucified Jesus, they are turning to him. And they are admitting that they were wrong. That Jesus Christ, who they crucified, was and is the way. 
And here's the other thing, why this is so significant and so powerful. Not only was it humbling themselves and saying, hey, I was wrong, it also, in doing so, led to their unemployment. For them to profess Jesus meant they were out of job because their whole employment centered around that they were the mediators between God's people and God. And they say, bring us your sacrifice, we'll take it, and we'll, we'll let God know. And now, if they're acknowledging Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, there is just but one mediator between God and man, and that person is Jesus Christ, not the priest. And so for them to acknowledge, perhaps with blood on their robes, from the morning sacrifice where they took somebody's lamb and they, they killed it and said, okay, your sins are forgiven. With blood on the robes, they're coming. They're saying, man, I trust in the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm out a job, but I have a savior. That is, that is the power of what is happening here is when God's people are equipped and they use their gifts and this expression goes forward when Ordinary people have an extraordinary God working in them and through them. Even priests come to know Jesus Christ. And that's the commission. What the church needs now is not more superstar celebrity pastors. Those guys are sitting at home today, by the way. That's not what the church needs now. What the church needs now, now is more regular, committed members, members who faithfully celebrate, connect, contribute together, members who have the Spirit of God working in them and through them for the love of God and for the good of their neighbor. That is how the gospel multiplied greatly in their day, and it will be ours. And guys, if we do need to, in obedience to what the CDC is saying and what the government is saying, if we need to limit our gatherings to smaller groups, man, I'm just glad that the backbone of our church isn't a Sunday celebrate service. That it really is these smaller groups. Somebody's asking, well, how is Anthem going to prepare for this? It's like, we've been doing this our whole life. <laughs> We've been preparing for this with connection groups that model that small group. And if you're new to us, we would just say that that is the backbone of what we do is our midweek gatherings where we open the Bible in smaller groups. That is how the gospel is going to go forth. That is discipleship. It's not some superstar pastor, but it's through God's people. And here's how this looks. I just want to point this out. did a membership interview uh, within the last week or two and sitting down with somebody that says, I want to be a member. I want to take some ownership here at Anthem Church. And we had a great interview talking about, do you want to celebrate with us? Yeah, we're in. They're connected, contributing, jumping on board with that. And then we got to the end of the, the interview and the wife of the couple said, hey, I just want to ask, does Anthem Church do anything for those that have struggled with the loss of a child or who are struggling with infertility. And it seems like that, that, that those are painful things. And just wanting to, I'm wondering if we do anything. And uh, I said, man, I think you, you see a need. That's a real need to, to, to get that group together 
and to pray and, and to press forward and to have that kind of community that meets, not replacing connection group, but in addition to giving that extra thought and attention, I'm like, you see a need. Will you see it through? And here's this person that's just jumping on membership. And their first thing as a member is to start this group. And so here Katie stands up at the women's thing two days later and said, if this applies to you, I would love to meet. And here's the thing, Anthem Church, when in James, when it, the sick are called to, to pray for the, uh, uh, the sick are calling the elders to pray for them, let it be note the order there. It's the sick who are commanded in James to call the elders and pray. What we see here is the Hellenist Jews calling the disciples and saying, what are we going to do? And so here's the thing. I believe that God has enabled you to perhaps see a need, talk to the leadership, but are you willing to see it through? Because even who's appointed, it says, appoint from among you, those that kind of see the need among you, those that are seeing this, have them see it through. And so if you see a need, praise God. It might be evidence, though, that you need to see it through. And so just want to bring that to your attention. I'm thankful for Katie and her willingness to see it through. And I'm saying you might have stuff right now that would really bless and benefit Anthem Church that you see. Let's have a conversation, but be willing to see it through. Because, again, what we just said, if you're like, hey, Pastor, I see something. Why don't you go ahead and do it? The conversation is not going to go well because we're trying to, again, each gift be fanned into flame and be used to expand the kingdom. And here in our narrative, we're going we're gonna to follow one of those that's just like, I see it. I'm going to see it through. That's Stephen. Verse 5, it says he's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Extraordinary, or he's an ordinary person with the extraordinary hand of God on him. And that is partly why he was chosen. Like they saw these things. Do you notice that though? Even in his appointing in verse 5, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to pick this guy and, and hope he works out. They see that he is full of faith. It's large in part why they chose him, right? And so here he is. He's going to take care of these widows to make sure they're not treated like second-class citizens and get their distribution of food. And so, uh, food. And so in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, time out. Stephen, you're supposed to be passing out food, right? Like, which at this point, I'm, I'm presuming he did a good job with that, that it wasn't overly hard to correct, like, uh, who's being overlooked? Those people, what do we need to do? Get them food? Got it. Lunch break. And like, he's just like, so what do we do? And here he is, he's just out doing great wonders and signs among the people. Rest assured, he did his job and now he's doing more. And he's, he's doing these miracles where? Among the people. J.D. Greer in his book, Gaining by Losing, uh, just out there at the Info Central, notes that 39 out of the 40 miracles done in the book of Acts happened outside the context of the local church. Stephen is a lay leader in a living representation of Jesus out in places where only lay people go to work, into their homes, into their neighborhoods. And so he's among the people doing these things. I imagine just with just this surrendered heart where he says, God, I will do anything, anytime, anywhere you would have me. And so God sends him amongst the people. This frustrates people in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue says, they started to rose up and dispute with Stephen. 
In verse 10 it says, But they could not withstand the wisdom in the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now here's a question. Who are the religious people mad at? When you look at verse 9 through 11, who are they mad at? See, they're disputing with Stephen at the end of verse 9. But might I suggest that their problem wasn't with Stephen? Their problem's ultimately with God, verse 10. Do you see that? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Their problem is with God. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, hey, do not be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me. And so they're directing their opposition at Stephen, but ultimately the problem is God, with God. Here's the reality. Anthem, we should experience some level of opposition. If we are working on a secular campus with our college ministry, if you're going to, to work environments that are blatantly opposed to God, people with blatantly different worldviews, we should expect some level of opposition. Got to experience this when I was a college pastor in Iowa. Uh, I got called to a meeting, and there was all the other campus ministries there, but I didn't know the meeting was actually just for me. They just wanted to include everybody else. But the meeting adjourns, and the university official, uh, who's ahead of the student org, said, actually, can you stay here for a second? Sure. And then two other campus ministry people stayed there, and they said, we need to have a conversation, because one of your student leaders like we have here, one of your student leaders had a confrontation with one of our students. And they went on to say, the student they confronted has been partying, they're not in a great spot uh, in their relationship, but, but they're a good person who's a part of my ministry, and your student confronting them, telling them that they need to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and experience the forgiveness that he offers so that they could go to heaven, that is just wrong and offensive, and they shouldn't be telling that person that they need Jesus. That was a campus minister. <laughs> the university official jumps in, and I'm just quiet. I'm taking it at this point. Uh, the university official says, you can't impose your beliefs on others. It's not right for you to tell them that they're wrong to which God is great and he provides words. I said, isn't that exactly what you're doing to me right now? Aren't you telling me it's wrong to do what we just did? Isn't that essentially doing the same thing that I'm being corrected for? Smiles all around, meeting adjourned, is how that went. I go back, by God's grace, we had a leaders meeting, I think that day or the next day, and to stand up in front of those 70 student leaders Say, I'm so proud to be your pastor. That you would care enough for your friend and their salvation and where their eternal destiny that you would have a hard conversation. I am so proud of you and I will back you seven days a week, twice on Sunday, if that's what it takes, with these university officials. Like, we don't alter the gospel message. We don't alter truth because there might be some level of opposition. We lean into it and we should expect it, Jesus said. And so if we are not facing some level of opposition, somebody said, if you don't meet Satan on the road of life, perhaps it's because you're heading the same direction. We should experience some level of opposition. 
you would tell me that they, our culture is, is broke. They're looking, they're, they're, everybody's just longing for something, and they're all just wrong, and I fear for our culture and the day we live in. But you don't have problems with that same culture that you just described? Are we really that different? So we should experience some level of opposition. And I'm saying everything we do must be absolutely rooted in love. A love for God and a love for others. But sometimes love means saying something that might conflict with somebody. And their frustration, their frustration wasn't that with that student. Their frustration was with truth and was ultimately with God. And that student, perhaps just a teenager, handled themselves so well. And so they target Stephen. They may target you, but ultimately the frustration was God. And, and here's the thing. Stephen, live in a pure life, and I would say live a pure life. Live a pure life because when it came to the accusation, just like Jesus, they couldn't find anything. Like, oh, what does he do with his free time? Or what does he do for his occupation? He feeds widows. What does he do with his free time? Miracles and all this stuff. Uh, uh, did he kick his dog or something? Anything. Give me something. And just... They can't find anything, so they have to make up an accusation, which they've done before. And so they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak against Moses and against God. And the high priest in chapter 7 now, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? I love Stephen. Oh, he said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And he just, just like Toy Story pull the cord, and he just goes <laughs> for the next 52 verses. It's just preaching fire. He did not cower. He went, and he just like, oh, you thought that was, oh, that rocked the boat? <laughs> About to capsize the thing. It just just lays on it. And here he is. He's, he's not a paid pastor, but he is not a slouch. He read his Bible. He understood theology. He remembered it, and when you gave him the opportunity, it just pours out of him and the accusation the accusation is like i heard him say some bad things about moses and the irony though is if you look in chapter 6 verse 15 as they gazed at him the council saw his face and it was like the face of an angel it is reminiscent of of moses back in exodus 34 moses went to meet with god and comes back and his face is so radiant that they have to ask him to, like, put a veil on it because it's glowing so much. Like, it, <laughs> they were frightened. And he's like, oh, you think that, that I'm against Moses? Yo, I look more like Moses than any of you here. That's one. And then two, he's like, you don't think I know my Moses? And he goes on in this thing to just, he's going to talk about Jesus, but he's going to use Moses to get there. Nine times references Moses by name. Over 30 times, 30 times references him in the sermon. And he's like, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, but I can use Moses to get there. Just, we don't have time to unpack the whole sermon. Well, let's just pick it up as he's laying it on him in verse 39. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, him being Moses, and thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And, in that, uh, and they made a calf in those days. Which, by the way, at this point, I believe Moses is on the mountain hanging out with God, receiving 
commandments that would lead these people, but they're like, he's been gone for a while. We don't know what's happened. We need new gods. Why don't you make some of them out of gold? And so they make these calves, and he goes on in, in 51. He says this, you stiff, this is Stephen preaching, you stiff-necked people. I don't know if that's very culturally sensitive. Uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law and delivered by angels did not keep it. He is not afraid to call out sin and make Jesus known. In verse 54, and when they heard these things, they were enraged. They, these religious leaders, ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said it, he fell asleep. That is that he was killed. And we have the first person martyred for the faith. Is this ordinary man who waited on tables but was filled with an extraordinary God who worked in him and through him. This regular church tender. And God used this. What we're going to see as we continue our study, the church multiplied greatly because of men like this in Jerusalem, and now it's going to spread in an instant with this event to the ends of the earth, in the hearts and on the mouths of ordinary people filled with an extraordinary God. So this week, as we respond, I would just want to say, we're, we're not doing communion today for, for the obvious reasons of, of wanting to, to be cognizant of spreading things, but, but if you were willing to share in the, the communion table, are you willing to share in the work? Let me say that again. Like, you're willing to experience the forgiveness God has are you willing to experience the work that God would have for you? And those things go together. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, talks about, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works so that anyone can boast. But he goes on to say, for we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yeah, we love the faith. We love the forgiveness that Jesus offers. But he goes on to say, God has prepared good works, Anthem Church, for you. He's enabled you to see things, and he's given you the power to see it through. Are you willing to embrace that? And it's when God's people working together, exercising their gifts, that's what's going to have the gospel go forth. And so perhaps one of the first things, you're like, yeah, I can see things, but I don't know if I can see it through because I, I just don't know my Bible like Stephen did. I'd say, man, first thing is just start 
reading your Bible so that you could be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have, that we would be praying and fasting as a church. Again, as I referenced Katie, that if you would see a need, you would see it through. And so while we're not doing communion today, we do get to have a response today, and it's uh, uh, with a baptism and excited. So I'm going to have Erica come up, and I'm going to allow her to, to share her uh, just story. So come on up, Erica. Hi. Um, okay. So I've been in Saw Company for a little over a year and a half now, but I only started going regularly at the beginning of last semester. I went to Catholic school from the age of three to 18. Although I was in a Catholic setting academically, my family lost all faith, going to church, praying, pretty much everything, when I was about four years old due to a death in the family. Because of this, I never really knew Jesus personally. I knew the Catholic religion and their practices, but I knew nothing of personal faith. But my parents always raised me to be a good person. I always tried to be kind and loving to all people. But now that I look back, I never really knew why I acted like that other than because that's what I was raised to do and that's what they taught me in school. I knew it said to be kind in the Bible, but I never really did things because the Bible told me to. I just did them because I felt that it was right. In high school, I began to experience depression and severe anxiety. More than ever, I began to rely on earthly things to keep me going. There would be times when I would inflict harm upon myself if I felt that I wasn't doing good enough or if I wasn't what other people wanted. There were even moments when I was tempted to take my own life. But the reason I didn't was because of my family. They were what held me here and kept me going. Um, going away for college was one of the hardest choices I made because of that separation from my family. I'm a really shy and introverted person when I first meet people, so I was really worried about making friends. But during Welcome Week, I accidentally got involved in Salt Company without even knowing what it was. I was really thirsty and on my way back to my dorm for a nap, and I saw that they were handing out water at the Salt Tailgate. So I was going to try and sneak in and grab some water and quickly leave because we all know how you get dragged in at those events. Um, it didn't work. I got stuck talking for like 30 minutes, and I didn't even end up getting a nap. But I met some really nice people, and I was invited to the salt kickoff where I was told there would be free pizza, so of course I was going. So I got signed up for a C group, once again, not knowing what I was getting into. I went the first time and was glad I met some really nice girls. Then I kept going and realized it was a Bible study, and I didn't have much interest. But I felt bad about not going after I made a commitment, so I kept going, even though I didn't really enjoy it at all. After a semester and a half of going, something was starting to stir in my heart. I had no idea what it was, but it was I was more interested in C Group, even when I wanted to start going to Salt on Thursday nights. My openness to faith kept growing, and I realized that God was beginning to work in me. I began to feel extremely convicted for sin I committed knowingly, and I started to realize that I didn't want to do that anymore. I also began to not feel anxiety and depression at the extent I had in previous years. I completely handed my life over to Christ at the SALT conference a few weeks ago. It was definitely a scary moment for me, but I knew that God had me from then on. Since then, God has been with me in all moments of my life. God has made me constantly joyful, even on my worst days. Although I still experience stress and anxiety, God has taken a lot of it away, and he keeps me optimistic even when everything seems to go wrong. I know that depression could come back in my future, but I also know that God is on my side this time, and he will be with me every step of the way. God has opened my heart to faith, which I never even thought was possible in someone like me, yet here we are. 
through Jesus, I have been saved, and I am living my life for him. Since coming back from the SALT conference, God has been putting baptism on my heart, and I knew that I wanted to do it since he was telling me to. I love God and want to live out his will for me, so here I am committing an act of obedience for our God. that's the reality is we studied this out and and some of the application is is Stephen knows where he's going that's why he can look as they're stoning him and say father forgive them they don't know what they're doing but but he knows where he's going because his trust is in Jesus and what you just heard Erica say is her trust is in Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins and so that just calls us solicits us to respond the first way to respond is in the waters of baptism not that it, water would wash away sins. Only Jesus' blood on the cross takes away our sins. But it signifies that our trust is in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The fact that he didn't stay dead. And so that is what she's putting her trust in. And if you're one of those that have yet to follow in obedience with baptism, would invite you to do so. Even some of you students, man, you're going home. And so we would want to just invite you. And so after the service, that water's still going to be warm. I think I got a pair of gym shorts in the truck. Like, we are all right. Like, we, I'm genuinely inviting you and say, what would keep you from following in obedience? And so we can't run out of here and be like, God, I'll do anything. Just not the first step. I just invite you to take the first step in the faith that Erica just put on display in Jesus Christ. And so uh, just, yeah, just thankful for that. Uh, the band's going to play, and they're going to be able to have a moment. Sierra, who's... Uh, pivotal in that story is going to get the opportunity to baptize her and when she goes under and comes on up we ought to be whooping and hollering um and so just cheering for that and then just invite you to stand and just continue in worship with us
the fountains and deepest waters, your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you never fail and you won't start
Somebody took me up on my gym clothes offer, so I'm going to bring Jeff up here. And uh, yeah, yes. I. Uh, yeah. So Jeff uh, is just. You guys get to hear his story, and this is Toby, his connection group leader. So jump on up here, Toby. So, Jeff. Hey guys. I've got kind of a different uh, baptism story. Uh, when I shared it with uh, Stan a while back, he was like, man, that's, that's weird. I don't know what to do with that. Um, that's, that's actually pretty verbatim. Um, so I grew up in a Lutheran house. Um, parents brought me to church, and when I was young, my, uh, my best friend uh, actually led me to Christ. I was blessed with a, an awesome best friend who really helped uh, develop a lot of my character growing up. Uh, came to college, started getting into the Bible, um, got really, did a lot of, uh, things at that time in my life, and, uh, as you guys probably are aware, uh, Lutherans sprinkle their, their, uh, their babies, um, and a lot, a lot of them will teach that baptism saves you, and that's something that I denied, um, but they also, they also sprinkle where the, as the baptism, it means to submerge or dip, that's why we immerse people, and so I was like, well, I need to get baptized. And so I was working at a church camp in Colorado, and uh, the guy was like, you haven't been baptized yet? I was like, no, I need to. And started going through scriptures, and uh, really a lot of scriptures, if you take them out of context, would have you believe uh, that baptism does save you, that your water baptism saves. Uh, Acts 2.38, we went through it a while back. That was used, and then I was like, well, maybe I'm not saved, maybe I'm and so I ended up getting baptized out there in Colorado, and when I came out of the water, uh, the guy who baptized me, he said, welcome to the family, and it just, it didn't sit right, because I, I knew I'd been redeemed, I knew that I had the Spirit of God living in me, I remember confiding in my, my uh, roommate, like, there's no way that I've, I've, I just got saved, that's not how it works, it's, you know, I, I didn't have that clear conscience about it, and this is, 10 years ago, and it's bugged me ever since, and uh, my missions mentor, uh, he's kind of, he's called me uh, an alien Baptist for a while, just kind of giving me a hard time, trying to provoke me. Um, I think it's Second Timothy, or Second Peter, probably about 3.9, it says, baptism saves us, but it doesn't stop there. It says, not the washing away of, of the sinful flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God through Christ Jesus. We can have a clear conscience toward God only through what Christ did on the cross, only by putting our faith in what he did on the cross and that resurrection from the dead. And I, I told Stan, I've, I've talked to, to our community group for a while. I was like, man, I really think I should get baptized. I want to have that clear conscience, not that, that I'm washing away my, my sin, but that I'm, I'm being baptized, not necessarily by this ultra high authority or anything, but of like-minded believers who say, you know what? You are saved by grace through faith. You're kept by grace through faith. And so I, I got wrapped up in, in these false teachings for a while, and I, I've rejected those. And, and I imagine there's other people who have similar stories. And so I want to encourage anyone, you know, if God gives you a conviction about something, don't ignore it. Don't put it off like, like I have. And then when, uh, when Stan was like, he goes, what would, you know, just like Philip said to, with the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, the eunuch said, he goes, look, here's water. What would hinder me to be baptized? It's like, well, what, what's stopping me? And it's, you know, it's, it's pride. That's what it is. That's what it's been for so long, saying, well, you know, I've, I'm friends with a lot of those people who believe like that, and maybe they would shun me or, or whatever, but who cares? 
Like, like we're here to represent Christ. We're here to preach the true gospel, the, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith and what Christ did, not of works. We're saved in order to work, and so that's, that's our message. That's what I believe, and that's why I want to get baptized today. Just the fact that, that Jeff's wife is on the worship team this morning, too. And so what a sweet thing. And I'm out of shorts, but we can figure something out, okay? So uh, we're going to do the same thing. He goes down, comes up. You guys respond, and then we'll keep worshiping together. So.
is our desire that we would know you so deeply and that knowledge of who you are would well up this love inside of us that would overflow in obedience. And so God, thank you for, for those that died that the, the faith would go on. And so Lord, we just remember those who are laboring hard now as missionaries overseas or, and those that are laboring hard now. God, would you continue by your spirit to fill them, fill us to take the gospel and have it multiply greatly. And Lord, we just recognize now, and even as the president calls it a, a day of prayer, we recognize right now that our culture is looking for something to security, looking for something to hope, wanting to cling to just something. And it's really a someone, and that is you, God. It is you, and would our life and our actions display the confidence we have being grounded in you. Not that you're gonna prevent us from, from all these things, no. That we don't have a false security, Lord. Our hope is eternal security in you, that you defeated death through Jesus Christ. And so that's our confidence. That's our declaration today as a church, today, tomorrow, until you call us home. Lord, would our lives boldly declare that. And it's only because of what Jesus has done, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We'll keep you posted. If you're not getting the updates, please swing by Info Central. We'll make sure to get you in the system so we can keep you guys posted this week. God bless.